0: look at Genesis chapter 20 this morning our continuing walk with Abraham and God's working in his life and through his life carrying out his purpose that is God's purpose and God does have a a wonderful and amazing purpose wonderful purpose amazing purpose and that purpose is if I can put it very simply to save sinners God is a about the business of redeeming our lives. Isn't that glorious? You say, well, I don't I don't need him to redeem me. Yes, you do. <clears throat> yes, you do. And he's the only one that can. He's the only one that can. He's about his marvelous business, his purpose, his plan to restore the relationship that we had with him in the beginning. The Bible tells us that we were Created by him, and we were created by him for relationship with him. Very simply, if I can put it this way, God wanted children. Think about this as a parent, those of you who are parents. Why did you have your children? The question, the answer is I don't know why I had them, I just had them. What were you going to do with them? I'm not sure. Figure that out when I got them. I mean, if you think about it, you know, you can have all sorts of goals and plans and so forth, but when you have children, there's a there's an instinct I believe that God plants in you. You just want them. I know the analogy breaks down, but if I can put it in those terms, God wanted children. He doesn't need us. God is totally self-sufficient, complete, total, perfect fellowship within the Godhead, within the Trinity. But the Bible says he is love, and love must of necessity express itself, and so he must express himself. He does so in the context of relationship. So he creates us, and he creates us for himself. That's why he made us in his image. In the first chapter of Genesis, if you recall, in the creation account, when God makes man, the writer tells us that God has made man in his own image, in his own likeness. He's made us like him. And when you read the creation account, no other aspect of all the creation is said to be made in the image of God except mankind. We are inherently unique. And part of that uniqueness is for the purpose of, again, relationship with God. He's made us with certain qualities. We are personal beings. We're not animals. We're not just a higher form of animal. We are personal beings. That means we, we have personhood. Personhood is inclusive of identity. It's, a, it's inclusive of things like the capacity to know and to be known. We, we do long for relationship. But in our fallen state, we have kind of a love-hate relationship with relationship, don't we? We want to be in a relationship, but we're afraid of it, and we hate it sometimes. Don't want to be bothered with it, Right? much rather be all alone but when i'm all alone then i want what be back in relationship <laughs> he's made us personal beings he's made us beings with a rational capacity he's made us beings with a capacity to make choices he's made us beings with a capacity to have a wide range of experience a wide range of emotions in short he's made us and communicated to us qualities that he himself possesses again for the purpose of relationship Because you cannot have a relationship between one competent partner and one incompetent partner. You've got to have two competent partners. So he makes us in such a way now that we're competent for him, competent for relationship. God is wonderful. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is preaching to the philosophers of his age in in Greece, in Athens. And he says to them, he speaks about God. He says, God made from one man every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And God determined the times set for them. So he determined the times for each nation, each people group. He determined the exact places where they would live. And if you go back to chapter 10 of Genesis, when we studied through the table of nations, we saw that to be true. And then the next verse, verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. All of that talks about the relationship that God wants to have with his creation, with us. But the Bible says that, if you recall from the third chapter of the book of Genesis, the Bible says that man, mankind, in the person of Adam, rebelled, rejected God's offer of relationship, refused it, chose rather to go his own way. He had a better offer, so he thought. And sometimes the devil does make us a better offer, huh? Sometimes, at least it it seems that way, sometimes the world makes us a better offer. Sometimes our flesh, it seems like there's a better offer. But very clearly, we see that, that, that man thought he had a better offer, and he rejected God's offer. Man was created absolutely perfectly without a flaw. You and I are terrifically flawed. We are terrifically fallen. We are broken, stapled, mutilated, bent, run over, But the first man, first woman were not. They had no weakness. They had no flaw. They were perfect. But they were yet untested. And God simply lays before them a loyalty test, an opportunity to say, you know, God, we've weighed everything. We have full knowledge. We have full understanding. And we've weighed it all. We choose you. Did they do that? No. They chose what they thought maybe was a better offer. They chose and they sought to be independent rather than remain dependent upon God. And that's been the issue ever since. Dependence or independence. Do I need God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every single moment of every single day of my life, I need to be in an intimate relationship with Him. And when I am not acknowledging Him in all of my ways, I am going to what? lean on my own understanding. So the Bible says that we refuse to trust him. We refuse to depend upon him. We refuse to just say, okay, I trust you. You say go this way, I don't know fully understand, but I'm going to go this way. That's what he says. This is what it means to live by faith. You don't know the bottom line necessarily. You don't know all that's going to be required. But when you trust God, he says something very clearly to you. You say, okay, I know you know best. I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to submit. I'm going to depend upon you. So we rebelled. We didn't do that. But the Bible goes on to say that God's still loving us. Still wanting a relationship with us. God is not fickle like you and I. Someone repudiates you, someone throws you off and refuses your offer and rejects you. Typically, we say, Well, a heck with you. Right? Not God. Not God. Loving us, He pursues us and He promises to reconcile us to himself. He promises to do something and to work in such a way that he reconciles us to himself. While we're still his enemies, while we still hate him, while we're not even interested, while we're asleep, he has promised to reconcile us to himself. Does that blow your mind? What a promise. What a promise. This whole book called the Bible is the record of that promise carried down generation after generation after generation, fulfilled, 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 finally fulfilled in the person of one man, Jesus Christ, we meet in the Gospels. This this book called the Bible is the record of God working out his plan, his purpose, his in the context of human history. God is doing this. The amazing thing is is that we participate and we're not puppets. And how it all works out, I don't know in terms of how the the intricacies of, of God working and us participating. I just know that God is faithful to his promise and he is working. He loves us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first signal of that promise to redeem us. When God curses the serpent after the fall of man, when God curses the serpent for his part in deceiving the woman, and God prophesies. He says, someone's going to come, identified by the pronoun he. Someone is going to come who's going to destroy the, ser- the serpent, destroy the devil. There's going to be combat, and the combat is going to amount to just a bruise on the heel for this someone. We don't know who that someone is. Just the, it's a male person born to some woman. We don't even know when it's going to happen. If the Bible were to end right there, we would never know. But again, the Bible is the unfolding of the identity of this individual and the process which this person is going to come into the world. So he promises. He promises, in effect, that he is going to redeem us. In John 3.16, you know it's God's love that motivates him. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, his most precious possession, so that whoever would believe in him, whoever would trust in him, whoever would ever look to him, would not perish but have everlasting life. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, here again, Paul enunciates God's plan and purpose, that he is, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling you and I as sinners to himself. What a marvelous, marvelous thing. We are the object of God's redemptive love. He doesn't just throw us away. He doesn't just reject us because we rejected him. Isn't that tremendous? However, there is great opposition to God's plan and purpose. We have been seeing this opposition through the first 19 chapters. We've been seeing the willfulness of man, the sin of man. We've been seeing satanic opposition. We've been seeing the opposition of the world in various forms. The opposition comes, first of all, through our own sinful, weak flesh. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, In my inner being I delight in God's law, but there's another law at work in the members of my flesh. It doesn't want to do what God wants me to do. And so there's a part of me that, though I say, oh, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, there's another part of me that says, no! That digs its heels in and resists. Even though logically, rationally, I think, I should go that I should obey God, I should... But there's this part of me, my humanness, my yet sin, sinful flesh, that will one day drop off and I'll get brand new flesh, if you will, That's going to match this new spirit that I possess, that I am, that will be suitable for heaven, suitable to be in the presence of God. But until that time, I battle this flesh. I battle it. It's in opposition to God's plan. But not only the the flesh, we have a world. The world system we live in is opposed to God, opposed to His plan, opposed to His purpose. All of us, at one point or another, were in the world. We were in the world system. We agreed with it. We said, yes, this is good. We like this. And then God got a hold of us. How many are glad God got a hold of you and rescued you from the world system? He rescued you. The Bible says that God, God, rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his Son, whom he loves. God did that. So not only do we have opposition to the world, we also have Spiritual opposition in, in the person of the devil and his demons. Peter says that the devil is roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I think one of Satan's greatest tools is discouragement. He would love to discourage you. He'd love to discourage you. Discourage you, you're dead in the water. Isn't that true? He'll use everything. He'll use everybody. Even unwittingly, he will do it to get us discouraged. He'll try to discourage us. He'll try to deceive us in order to defeat us. He does not want us trusting God, living by faith. He's going to try to show us the downside, the downside, the downside. Appeal to our rational capacity alone. Get in the way. Put other people in the way. Circumstances. And God will allow that. In fact, God will even use Satan to do those things. Do you know that? He does it for our dad or our good? Our good, that's right. So, despite all of the opposition, I'm here to tell you, despite all the opposition, God is faithful. And God is greater. And God is more powerful. And God is still at work. And His will will be done. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's will will be done. We have been seeing this through the first 19 chapters of the book of Genesis that God is faithful, He is sovereign to bring about His will. If you recall back in chapter 18, verse 10, God came to Abraham. And he announced to Abraham, actually he reaffirmed to Abraham that he would have a son, and he would have a son through his wife, Sarah. What's incredibly miraculous about this is that Abraham at the time was 100 years old and Sarah is 90. And remember, they both laughed. Sarah, out of unbelief, Abraham, just because he was utterly amazed... So God affirms to them the reality that they're going to have a son. He's going to have a son through Sarah and they're going to name that son Laughter. (laughs) Every time they call him to dinner, they're going to remember that they laughed. You see, Isaac would be the next link in this chain of God's purpose to bring about this great promise of salvation. Abraham has been carrying it now. Abraham has been balancing it. <laughs> like that's being kind. But now it's going to be passed on to Isaac. And we're at a crucial point here. We're at a crucial point in this whole, whole environment. Because in chapter 20 now, we find ourselves on the very brink of the birth of Isaac. You have to see this. Chapter 21 is going to be the birth of Isaac. So here we are. We're on the very brink of the birth of Isaac. You would think that Abraham, fully aware that Sarah is going to give birth within a short period of time, you would think that Abraham would be most particular to take care of his bride. Would you? You would think. How many husbands do we have? If your wife was going to give birth to your first son, you're 100 years old, she's 90. You got one shot at this, <laughs> and you know that this is an important birth. Would you take a special care of your wife? No. Yes. You better shake your head. Yes, Ben. Cyril, <laughs> have your head. And so here's here's Abraham. Isaac is about to be born in just a few more months, presumably. And now the very promise of God, the very purpose of God, which will be carried forward in Isaac, is put in jeopardy by Abraham, traded away in the interest of his own personal safety. If the promise is going to be fulfilled, if this is going to happen, If God's plan is going to go forward, it owes nothing to Abraham. It owes all to the grace of God. Beloved, there's a lesson there for you and I. In the midst of our foolishness and failures, our hope is not in our ability and our strength, even our willingness. Our hope, our confidence, is in the grace of God. It's in the grace of God. If you learn nothing else from this chapter, you learn that. God's grace to you. The Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, The Philippian church was, was probably his favorite church. We all do have favorites, whether you like it or not. Probably his favorite church. And they were people, he talks about them to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he describes the Macedonian churches and their sacrifices for him and for the other churches. He extols their virtue and he says, out of their extreme poverty, their generosity welled up. These people were dirt poor people. So if you read the first chapter of Philippians, the first verses, he just loves them, he greets them, he, he, he encourages them, he thanks God for them. And then he says this in verse 6. He says to them, he says, my confidence is in God. My confidence is in the Lord. That the good work that he's begun in you, he will bring to completion. Now that's one context. We can extract the principle out of that and apply it here for Abraham. We can apply it for your own life. The good work that he's begun in you, he will bring to completion. He's made a promise. He has a purpose. And despite whatever happens, our own foolishness, Abraham's foolishness, selfishness, whether the enemy attacks, the world rejects, God's purpose is sure. He will bring that good work to completion. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, as we get into the chapter, Abraham is on the move, and this provides a little backdrop for the drama of this particular chapter. Now, Abraham moved on from there, where he was at the great tree of Mamre, moved into the region of the Negev, so he moved south, lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he lived in Gerar. Now, here's where the thing really begins to happen. And there is Abraham said of his wife. So everybody he meets, he says, I want you to meet my. I want you to meet my sister. Have we been here before? Have have we seen this before? I mean, it is bad enough that he did this down where? In Egypt in chapter 12 you would think, you would think, especially now on the brink of the birth of his son Isaac, God bless you, you would think this would be the furthest thing from his mind. How many of us have done things that we knew better not to do? And especially at crucial times, we shouldn't have done it. It's going to be real difficult for us to fault Abraham. (laughs) I knew better. Why did I do that? Selfishness. Selfishness. I think he does this, one, out of cowardice, two, because he's afraid. But really, I think, what underneath it all, is this God-given instinct gone amok of self-preservation. This is a gift of God. Without it, you and I wouldn't even continue to exist. We hunger to live. We hunger to to have life, don't we? So there's an instinct built into us for self-preservation, but there's a line over which you can cross and that you will seek to preserve yourself at all costs and no matter what it costs other people. Anybody find that true in their life? We, we develop strategies. Abraham has a strategy, and you'll learn later in the chapter, we'll see it, when he gives this explanation to Abimelech for why he does what he does, that this was a strategy that he had developed even before they left Ur of the Chaldees, when God called them. In fact, he blames the whole thing on God. but we develop strategies to save ourselves don't we to save ourselves in a tough spot from being embarrassed to cover up we tell half truths white lies we call them we justify we do a dance we we do all manner of things to make ourselves look better in effect covering up saving ourselves it, it, does this make sense to anybody For example, what is it that really, really keeps me from sharing my faith more openly? Ask yourself that question. What is it that keeps me from sharing my faith more openly? Well, I'm I'm afraid. Okay, you may be afraid. But what is it underneath your fear that really is the issue? I suspect, and I want to submit to you, I think it's this dynamic of self-preservation. I want to save myself. Embarrassment. I don't want to be told no. I don't want to need someone to yell at me. I don't want to be rejected. And all that kind of stuff. So all I'm submitting to here is that this situation which Abraham, he's motivated by his own self-preservation. Here's the hero of our faith. And if God could use him, guess who else he can use? Us. Jesus told his disciples and he tells us by extension that if you really are going to save your life you must, what? Be willing to lose it. You got to be willing to lose it. You got to be willing to hang it out there and risk with God. Isn't that exciting? Now you're going to find life. Now you're going to have life. But if you're always trying to keep it you're trying to hold it in you're trying to save yourself you're not willing to risk it. You're never going to know life. And you end up growing smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. This is part of the lesson that God teaches Abraham and because to, this, this whole episode is going to set the stage for what's going to come later. This is absolutely critical in his life that he grow through this. That's well, why God allows it. Because God is sovereign and he can overrule it and he can use it for Abraham's good. So Jesus says if you're going to find your life, really, you must be willing to lose it. You're not going to get saved unless you lose it, unless you get on that cross with Jesus. You're not going to be saved unless you're willing to carry your cross every single day, trusting him. So Abraham lies. introduces his wife as his sister. Now notice this, Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Now he's the king. He's the sovereign of this area, this, this district. And as such, he has absolute control over all the people. And he can take any woman he wants for his harem, whether for personal reasons or for political reasons. And many times these marriages were political in nature to form alliances with neighboring tribes, kings, and so forth so that they could have peace. So he's the king. He can take her as soon as he finds out that she's not married, or at least he thinks she's not married. So he has Sarah sent and brought into his harem. At this juncture, things are quickly escalating out of control for Abraham. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? He's got to go to King Abimelech and say, King, I made a mistake here. I, I put you in jeopardy. Can you see him doing that? For Abraham, things are escalating out of control. they out of his hands now. One decision that he makes opens the door, but they're not out of control for God. This is so important. Things are not out of control. Your life, you say, God, I'm just out of control. No, you may be out of control, but God's not out of control. He's got everything in your life in perfect control. It doesn't feel like it. I know it doesn't feel like it. But as soon as you come to grips with the fact that God is sovereign and he's got everything under control, I promise you the peace of God will begin to steal your heart. He is in control. He is absolutely sovereign over every single detail. He knows what's going on, and only he can use all these things in his miraculous way for your good and his glory. Hallelujah. And his glory. Yes. He's God. This is the God that we trust. This is the God that we worship. God will not allow his purpose and he will not allow his promise to be broken, to go off track. He will not. Now, before Abimelech can touch Sarah... <laughs> Before he can touch her, God had apparently struck him with some kind of deadly malady. Now, we don't know what it was. It doesn't tell us. But if you look in verse 3, verse 3 says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead. So he's got some kind of deadly disease that's going to take him down. You're as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now, I want to suggest something to you. Do you ever wonder, you know, you get, a, you get this thought, and you, you, you get an impulse or something, and you go, was that God or was that me? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You in a little quandary about this? You know, should I do this? Was this God talking to me? <laughs> Let me suggest to you if God wants to communicate something to you, there will be no doubt it's Him. You won't be going back and forth. Was that God? Was that me? Was that the pizza I ate? Was it. <laughs> I promise you. There will be no doubt in your mind. I can envision Abimelech on his bed, sleeping, God speaking to him in a dream, making it very clear he is a dead man because of this woman he's taken, she's married, and I can see him sitting up with a start in his bed going, Whoo You ever had a nightmare, and you just sit up and you go, Whoa! Yeah. I mean, if it were me, man, I'd God talked to me in a dream, told me I was a dead man, You think I'd just roll over and go back to sleep? (laughs) I don't think so. He's got Abimelech's attention. Now notice this. Now Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation, assuming in in Abimelech's mind that the disease that was afflicting him was going to afflict the whole nation. Not only are you going to just die, your whole nation, everyone's going to go down. Because this one woman. Lord, will you destroy this innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say he's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. He pleads innocence. Lord, I was duped. What does God say? Verse 6, Then the Lord said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I, and I love this. I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Amen. Wow. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, albeit a reluctant prophet, like Jonah. <laughs> he is nonetheless a prophet. The gifts and God, the gifts and calling of God. What? Or without repentance. God doesn't take them back. He gives you a gift, you use it. He says, but if you do not return her, you will be sure that you and all yours will die. Now I want you to notice that Abimelech may or may not have known about the one true God before. Do you think he has become aware now? Oh yeah, wake up. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, we see the outcome of God's visit. Early the next morning, I suspect Abimelech probably didn't sleep much the rest of the night. Hardly wait for morning. Immediately, early the next morning. He summoned all of his officials, and when when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Did they have something to be afraid about? (laughs) Big time. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of... You start getting real smart when you fear God. Right? So they were very, very afraid. Then Abimelech... Called Abraham. Called Abraham in, and he begins to confront Abraham. Now, if you recall from chapter 12 of Genesis, the first, the first couple of verses, two, three verses, when God commissioned Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing. I'm going to give you a great name. Those who bless you, all bless. Those who curse you, all curse. Do you think that in, that in that sense that Abraham was kind of receiving his marching orders, that he was to go, he was to carry this promise, carry this great hope, but he was also to be a light to other people? Do you think God meant for Abraham to reach out to the peoples around him? Do you think that God meant for him... Now Abimelech is, gonna, is the king of the Philistines at this juncture. We find out later that the Philistines... Do you think that God wanted to reach the Philistine people through Abraham? That if they would bless him, that God would in turn bless them? Sure. But notice, if you will, Abimelech confronts, in verses 9 and 10, confronts Abraham with three questions. Abraham was to bless him. Abraham was to be a source of blessing to Abimelech. But Abimelech just says, why have you done this? What have you done to me? Why have you done, What have you done to us? And how have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. You've done things that not even we would do. Boy, have you ever been as a Christian confronted by a non-Christian? And they say to you, I thought you were a Christian. They caught you doing something you ought not to do? Maybe it's something they wouldn't do. And you're embarrassed and chagrined? The temptation is what? Is to save yourself, make some excuse, rationale for what you did, rather than saying, you know what, you're right. The hardest thing to do is strap your hands to your side and let someone go, whap, 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 whap. Isn't that true? <laughs> and Abimelech says... What was your reason for doing this? What possibly could you have been thinking that caused you to do this? The very fact that he asked those three questions makes it clear that Abraham really had only asked himself one question. What's the one question you think that Abraham would ask himself? What is this going to do for me? There it is. What's this going to do for me? What is this? I'm making this, what's it going to do for me? He doesn't ask, what is it going to do to these people? He doesn't ask at all, what do they deserve? He doesn't even care about the facts of the situation. He doesn't even say, what are the facts here? It's just, what's it going to do for me? And I'm I'm saying this because you've got to see Abraham's choice, his situation, what he puts at risk. You and I, on the surface of it, would say, God, that guy is an absolute yo-yo head. (laughs) But in the next breath, we have to say, yeah, but God used him mightily in spite of himself. That has tremendous implications for you and I. You cannot Out-sin, God's grace. Paul says where sin is great, God's grace is what? Greater. Now, having said that, the temptation, Martin Luther says, is that we could just do anything we want. (laughs) No. Because it's the Spirit of God in you that compels you, moves you. Now, Abraham's reply, when, when, when... when Abimelech says, "Why did you do what could ever possess you to do this stupid foolish thing? Put us at risk." Listen to Abraham's reply. Now Abraham's reply reveals a pattern that's in all of us. We're no different. His reply reveals the fact that he is weak in terms of having all the facts. Do we ever act without having all the information? Do we ever kind of jump to conclusions? Do we just Can it well judge? He judges them in verse 11. He doesn't have all the facts. He says, Well, I said to myself, I lean to my own understanding, there's surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. How did you know that, Abe? You made an assumption, you had all the facts. You thought that maybe there was no integrity whatsoever in Abimelech and the people, the Philistine people? What had you heard? What had people told you? Do we make decisions without having all the facts? Do we judge people? The Bible says, New Testament says as Christians, we are not to judge the unbeliever. And yet we stand in judgment of the unbeliever all the time. What is it that keeps the unbeliever from coming into the church? Because of our judgment. Who are we to judge? Each other. And not our motives, our behavior. Big difference. The second place where he is mistaken is in his values. Verse 12, when he tells a half-truth. Well, he said, surely I thought there was no fear of God here. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my mother or my father, though not of my mother. So he's telling the truth, but he's not telling the whole truth. Oh, yes, and she did become my wife. (laughs) Little fact I left out. (laughs) And then, in terms of his motives, you see his cowardice evidence here in verse 13. And when God (laughs) had me wander from my father's household, when God made me do this, I had to develop a strategy to save myself. And so I told her. Now this is interesting, because we don't know this before. This is the first time we find this out. When he left Ur of the Chaldees, when God first called him, he turns to Sarah, he said, Now look, we're going on this thing, God's making us go, we have no choice in the matter. So wherever we go, tell people you're my sister. So I'll survive. What a guy. What a guy. He needs to be in our men's discipleship group. Would you agree? (laughs) Amazing. So he gives this incredible, incredible excuse. May I suggest to you, as you and I struggle with the same weaknesses, as we battle with the same sins, and we do battle them, don't we? Battle them with the confidence... To know that God is watching over you and that he is at work in you, though he does not approve of what you do, he is still greater and more sovereign. He's going to carry his purpose out in your life in spite of you, and he's going to take all of your foolishness and overrule it and use it for your good and his ultimate glory. Bottom line is, don't beat yourself up. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Don't beat yourself up. God is greater than your sin. His grace, your life, your future, your hope is going to come to fulfillment because of the grace of God. And that ought to, when you you come to grips with that, that ought to only cause you to want to embrace Him even more and thank Him even more. That's why we want to acknowledge him in all of our ways. Don't ever, beloved, don't ever, ever leave God out of the equation. Don't ever, ever leave him. Don't assume, don't assume that God is not always constantly working for your good. Romans eight twenty eight always, always applies. Even in your foolish rebellion. Because he's greater than your rebellion. You won't completely understand every situation. Certainly situations will come along. You know, every decision, every decision we make in life, even the wisest, the best decision you know how to make, has a downside in a fallen world, fallen people making them. So you're, you're and, and, and sadly, a lot of people are just immobilized. They don't, oh, if I do this, that's going to happen. If I do that, that's going to happen. And we tend to look at the downside. Rather than saying, you know, I'm going to make the best decision I know how to make, and I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to move forward fearlessly. Martin Luther put it this way: Trust God and sin on bravely. <laughs> Trust God and sin on bravely. I mean, we're gonna, no matter what we do, going to be li- we're going to be laden with sin. God's not going to reject us. If I go to the left, He knows what to do. If I go to the right, He knows what to do. He already anticipates all of it. Amazing! It gives my life so much comfort. I'm so thankful for him, so thankful for God, for his faithfulness. You won't know everything. You won't know all the details. You won't completely understand every situation, but God does. God does, and he will work for your good. Now, just look at Abimelech. Just look at Abimelech, case in point. Here's Abimelech. He had unknowingly taken a married woman into his harem, unknowingly, unwittingly done that, to be his wife, he was about to commit adultery, not to mention bring reproach on God's plans for Sarah. But God mercifully prevented him from doing so. He mercifully prevented him from... Do you see God's mercy in here? Is God merciful to all of the players in this particular episode? Is he merciful to Abraham? Oh, big time. Certainly merciful to Sarah. And really merciful to Abimelech, huh? God has mercy. God has mercy on all of us. You know, I often wonder, maybe you've thought this too along the way, how many times God has done the same thing for me that He's done for Abimelech, protected me from some sin in ways that I can't even see. I mean, I just kind of go along through life. I have no idea how God has protected me. I was just driving to church in the morning thinking about, uh, just this thought occurred to me that the only thing that keeps me safe in my car driving is the fact that God has protected me from somebody crossing that line and crashing into me. It's just a little line painted on the street. It's a convention. It's an agreement we have with each other. It's a social thing. It's a law. But nonetheless, there's no wall there. It's God who protects me. I thank him when I get stuck at a red light. Because I don't know what's been on the other side of that red light. If I'd have rushed through it, what had happened? Probably nothing, but I'd not want to take the chance. You know, during the Iraqi war recently, they, you know, remember when they, when they had these terrible sandstorms? Terrible sandstorms that bogged the troops down. They couldn't do anything. And then the rain came, and just it was miserable for those guys, right? And in the press, all the reports are, the, the Marines are bogged down. This is, this is a bad thing, right? What the reports didn't turn up in the newspapers to say is that when the rain had stopped and the wind had stopped, what right in front of all, all these Marines, where they had, would have gone, was revealed minefields and anti-tank mines. which they were able to just go right around. And then the, the demolition teams came in and cleaned up all the mines and stuff. There's an example of something. Wind, rain, bogging us down, slowing us down. All the naysayers going, oh look what's going to happen. We're not making a progress. Big mistake. A sovereign God protected them. You know why? I believe because our whole nation, all the believers in our country, were praying for them. God protect them. Keep them in your prayers. Keep them in your prayers. So we have no way of knowing what God has protected us from. We have no way of knowing all those kinds of things. We just know that God can and does protect us. And God works just as often in ways that we can't see as in ways that we can see. He is always there. He is always there watching over us directing us, bringing about his purpose for our life. And by the way, this whole episode is significant for Abraham. Significant because it seems that he finally learns the full lesson of faith, which indeed is necessary to prepare him for the future events. Chapter 22 is going to come pretty quickly, and in chapter 22 is the greatest challenge to his entire life. And yet God uses this to get him to a place. He's postured now for the great test of chapter 22. Chapter 22. For God will call him to sacrifice Isaac. Never again, when you read about Abraham, never again in the, next, in the succeeding chapters, never again do you find Abraham questioning God, delaying, or questioning his guardianship. Never again. Now the question can be asked, why did God afflict Abimelech when he had no idea that Sarah was married? Why did God afflict him when Abimelech was innocent of this whole deal? Do you ever think about that? Now even though Abimelech's intentions were good, relatively speaking, even though they were good, as long as Sarah was living in his harem, he was in danger of sinning, wasn't he? A person who eats a poisonous mushroom, no doubt has perfectly good intentions realizing and thinking that the mushroom is harmless but the person who eats that mushroom is going to what? Suffer, right? Sin is a disease, if you will. Sin is a disease that damages us, and it damages those around us, as we've seen with Abraham and his whole situation. Whatever our intentions. Well, I didn't intend for you to be hurt. I didn't intend for this to happen. But sin does. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. We are interconnected, and sin affects other people. We know that. The affliction of striking Abimelech and his household lasted only as long as Abimelech was in danger of defiling Sarah. It was not meant to harm Abimelech. It was all redemptive. It was designed by God to change the situation. Much like Pain in your own life is really meant by God to be redemptive. You put your hand on a hot stove, you remove it. (laughs) Something is wrong. Get it off of there. Pain is meant to be redemptive in a fallen world. God uses it for our good, in the same case here with Abimelech. Verse 14, Abimelech brought sheep, cattle, male and female slaves, gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. Remember down in, in Egypt, Pharaoh kicked him out. didn't want anything to do with him. Abimelech's different here. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your... I'm giving your... what?" Not your husband, your brother. Why why do you suppose he says that? I think he uses the term brother to describe Abraham because, in effect, he accepts Abraham's explanation. And he gives Abraham all of these goods to make restitution because Abimelech accepts full responsibility. Abraham gets off scot-free. (laughs) <laughs> I have a hard time with that. But there is somebody who has taken all of my blame so that I can get off scot-free. I don't have a hard time with that. I'm thankful for that. As I've given your brother a thousand shekels of silver, this is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you and you are completely vindicated. He takes full responsibility. And then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his slave girl so that they could have children again for the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. You know what? You have to come to grips with some stuff. You have to say, you know what? What do I see about God in this chapter? What what am I learning about God? What's being reaffirmed to me about God? That I can trust him, that he is absolutely faithful, that he has a good purpose. Paul says that God's purpose is good, pleasing, and perfect. Every reason to put my faith in him, every reason, God, I trust you. There isn't a single one of us in this room that doesn't have some issues in our life right now that we're battling, struggling, or sitting in our future, that are problems that we don't know what to do with. God, I trust you. I'm going to do what I know to do that you revealed to me in your word. I'm going to trust you that you know the path and you're going to make my path straight. We can learn much about God. Watching his care, his protection over Abraham, even Abimelech. What do we learn about ourselves? Failures, wretched, weak, undependable, self serving, self saving, bummer! But not to God. Not to God. He loves us. He loves us. So, whatever you're going through, how, however bad you've been, Don't beat yourself up. Say, God, thank you for your grace to me. Thank you for your grace to me. And let that grace to you, once you embrace it, let that grace so impact your life that it brings about a change in you. So you too, like Abraham, come to a fuller faith that will position you for the very next test in your life. Amen? Shall we pray? God, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are sovereign. And Lord, even though it seems like our lives are out of control, that you, you never lose control of them. That you are at work in us. Lord, that you will bring us home. Thank you. We love you this morning. And as we come to your table, we remember Jesus. We, Lord, we are so in need of refreshment, encouragement, strengthening as we reflect on Jesus on that cross and your love for us and how, Lord, we can rest in you be refreshed. But also how we can thank you and praise you and worship you for the great work that you have done that you're continuing to do and you will continue to do. Blessed be your name, Lord.